Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, February 23rd, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Michael, I have neglected to ask you about the Cast Albums database. How's things going over there? Oh, castalbumreviews.com. Yeah, yeah. it's going, going really well. We've got a lot of new reviews um, by uh, people like Laura Frankos and Matt Koplick and oh, uh, Andy Probst uh, wrote a, a oh. few for us. Yeah. Um, and I just actually, it occurred to me, oh, you know, we don't have a Facebook page. <laughs> oh. uh, and that's a really good marketing tool. So I just recently set one up and I'll be using that to, uh, uh, to publicize it. And as we add new reviews, I'll tease them there also. It's castalbumreviews.com, right? Yes. And uh, some of the most recent ones we have are Hades Town. And uh, let me actually just call it up and see what, what else we have. Uh, well, we're catching up on some other uh, older ones that we hadn't had. Uh, I had Matt Koplick review a lot of the Disney things, Mary Poppins, Frozen and Aladdin, um, uh, Pretty Woman, Tina, the the Tina Turner musical, Ain't Too Proud, The Band's Visit, Tootsie. So we're, we're really trying to, to keep it going and keep it updated. Hey, do either one of you know, have you heard any rumors about this, uh, the unsinkable Molly Brown getting recorded? No, I haven't heard anything about that, but I do certainly hope it happens. Ah, um, yeah. Because there are a lot of uh, new songs in there uh, from Meredith Wilson's catalog. Um, Dick Scanlon lives in my neighborhood, and um, and <laughs> I run into him from time to time. And um, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but he said, going through the Meredith Wilson's file, the original title for you got trouble, of course, not from Unsinkable Molly Brown. I don't have to tell you what it's from. It was actually called Ridiculous. Um, that's huh. what he said instead of you got trouble. So anyway, uh, huh. Dick has done a, a very uh, meticulous job of going through all the Meredith Wilson stuff and has some songs we've never heard before. So it should get a cast album. So, Michael, you have to. I'm going to put your cast on reviews things into your bio at Broadway Radio, so I remember oh, to mention you. it every week. Because yes. uh, what do we call you? A founder, or a curator, or executive editor? Or do you have no title necessary? Or <laughs> oh, good, good question. I guess uh, founder, founder, and editor. Founder and editor. I'm putting it in right now. That way, when I forget it next week, I can curse myself. No, Founder. thanks for bringing it up. I, uh, I, uh, we, we did have our official launch with that show we did at 54 Below, mm -hmm. which went so well. But uh, we still haven't done a huge publicity push. Uh, so, but yes, absolutely, every bit helps. And uh, we have an ad from Broadway Records, and things are going well. Oh, good to hear. So we uh, had some sad news this week that Zoe Caldwell had passed away. And uh, Peter, do you have some mem remembrances of Zoe? Yeah. Um, when she was doing master class, um, I did an interview with her and I went in there and I said, uh, you are giving the second greatest performance I've ever seen an actress <laughs> give uh, in all the years I've been going to the theater. I said, now, please, um, let me finish. Um, and that is the <laughs> first greatest performance I've ever seen an actress give in the theater was you in the prime of Miss Jean Brody. Now, now, it doesn't mean that you've lost a step and you're number two. It's because I didn't know who you were when I walked into that theater to see the prime of Miss Jean Brody on a Wednesday night. And I was back on Saturday afternoon to see you again. Um, so I, I was so impressed that I had to do that. And she said, you saw Jean Brody? You must have been very young. <laughs> and I thought for a second, I said, no, actually, I was already 21. And she said, 21 is very young to be going to the Decca. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Michael, how about you? I have a couple of stories. Uh, one is a secondhand story. A friend of mine was speaking with her about one of her shows and I can't remember which one it was one of her few flops. And, uh, he was just saying that he had seen it and really enjoyed it. And 
you know, and he didn't understand why it flopped. And she said in that voice of her, she said, Frank Rich killed us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, however, what's really interesting is that uh, she was nominated four times for Tony's and won every time. She never lost a Tony for what she was nominated, which is really something. I mean, you really have to be impressed by that, uh, you know, because uh, not even um, Angela Lansbury or Gwen Verdon or Julie Harris or uh, any of them uh, can really boast a thousand batting average. So that really is pretty, pretty significant. My one personal interaction with her was years ago, I was the executive secretary at the Century Club. Mm-hmm. And uh, she and her husband, Robert Whitehead, came in one day. And uh, the Century Club is not only for theater people. It's, it's, and it's not even primarily for theater people. There's lots of people from different walks of life. And so uh, she didn't necessarily expect it to be, expect to be re- you know, recognized or fawned over. But, of course, I knew who she was. So I went over to both of them. And, you know, I, I was in a professional capacity, so I didn't want to be too fawning. But I did want to make it clear how much I loved her and how much I enjoyed her. And she seemed so pleased. Both of them did. And I remember saying uh, that I had seen her in Medea and talked about that a bit. And, and then I said, that was televised, wasn't it? And she said, oh, yes, yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, way back in 2011, uh, we uh, asked her to present a Theater World Award. And I don't, I, I, I don't arrange who presents to whom, but somehow she got... Um, that uh, Stanley Gurgis play that was uh, on the boards then. And it was really something we didn't know if she was going to say the word, but then she was like, Oh, the motherfucker with the hat. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't shy away from it at all. I mean, she said it two or three times, you know, <laughs> and now to the ensemble of the motherfucker with the hat, you know? So um, <laughs> she was a good sport too. <laughs> she was quite, yes, yeah, she could be quite body apparently. <laughs> and, um, the most wonderful story I read about her recently was Charles Bush posted something wonderful on Facebook. He said that um, he had met Miss Caldwell. I forget the circumstances. And uh, he had invited her to come see him in a show, one of his shows one time. And she said she would. And he didn't know she would follow through. But she did. I think the show was Red Scare on Sunset. Uh-huh. Uh, but it doesn't really matter. Anyway, she was coming, uh, but she didn't tell him. I think maybe he asked her not to tell him. Uh-huh. Uh, so she came and saw the show. And then uh, he said, of course, that particular night was not a good show. He said, for whatever reason, the audience mm-hmm. wasn't responding. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. he did exactly the, the wrong thing you're supposed to do in that situation. And he started overacting and pushing and yeah. trying to get them to laugh. And uh, he knew it uh, without anyone telling him. But then uh, at the end of the show, uh, somebody came over and said, there's a, a Zoe Caldwell. To see. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, Oh my God. And, you know, yeah. and she came back and he, and she said, you know, she basically said, um, you are fabulous, but you were pushing tonight. She said, you don't need to do that. You should not do that. Uh, you, you're better than that. Bring them to you. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And he said at the time he was of course a little, put out uh, yeah. or, you know, uh, uh, sad about it and sure. maybe even felt maybe she sh- shouldn't have said that. But then mm-hmm. years later, he looked back and said it was the most helpful thing that anyone ever said to him. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and because that kind of honesty, you know, it's a fine line. It is. As to how honest to be with someone, especially right sure. after a show. Sure, sure. Uh, so but anyway, that I thought that was typical of her i don't i don't think she was the kind of lady to indulge in bullshit yeah indeed. Uh, and she was really an amazing woman and an amazing actress all right so uh also um we wanted to talk about some feedback that we received about michael's uh, spring awakening review from last week so michael tell us uh what's going on with that Oh, it's just that I raved about Spring Awakening at the Roundhouse Theater down in Bethesda, Maryland, and then I sent the uh, link to the to the podcast to the press person, and she wrote back and said that Alan Paul, who directed the show, is a big fan of Broadway radio, so he was so pleased to hear the rave review. And then uh, about two days later, this fellow Mark Hirschberg contacted me to uh, make some comments about 
the why the inheritance was doing so poorly on Broadway. He actually contacted me the day mm. of the night that the closing notice mm-hmm. was announced, and he didn't know that it was going to be quite that soon. And I think actually he then rushed uh, the article into publication. But anyway, I said, well, yes, I'd like, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to speak about it, but how do, how did you contact me? Because I don't believe we met. And he said, Oh, I'm a big fan of Broadway radio. So that was nice to have two, two of those <laughs> in the, in the space of a, a couple of days. Mark's uh, columns over at Forbes have been uh, primarily focusing on uh, the business of Broadway mm-hmm. and uh, legal stuff. Mark is a lawyer uh, and also writes for Forbes. Um, he's gotten quite a, a number of scoops since uh, he sort of has filled a little bit of the niche that Riedel, uh, uh, when Riedel's column was pulled back, uh, Mark has been focusing a, a lot on the business, and um, he's gotten quite a few really good columns. And we we talk about him often on Today on Broadway with Matt Tamanini and Ashley Steves. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I, we've even had Mark on a few times to further explain some of the articles uh, on Broadway Radio. Mark's really, really wonderful. And if you're interested in you know the business of Broadway, I mean, check out Mark's columns at uh, at Forbes. Uh, we have them listed in the um, in the favorites section on broadwaystars.com as well in the middle of columns. All right. So uh, let's move forward. Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah. The question was, what do these musicals have in common? Happy Hunting, Gypsy, Fade Out, Fade In, Lovely Ladies, Kind Gentlemen, Charlie and Algernon, and Legally Blonde. Well, uh, all of them have animals, real live animals that appeared in the show. Happy Hunting had a horse. Gypsy had a lamb. Fade Out Fade In had a seal. <laughs> Ugly Ladies Kind Gentleman had a goat. Charlie and Algernon had a mouse. And Legally Blonde had a dog. So um, getting it was only Brigadoo. That was it. Um, Tony Janicki had a terrible time with this, um, <laughs> said, um, all the people connected with the shows have alliterative names. Um, well, yeah, Edward Earl and Annalie Ashford, um, begin with vowels. So that's assonance. But anyway, then he said, I'm pretty sure that a wedding or at least the prospect of a wedding figures in each show. Uh, I said, if you have to use the word or in an answer, it's not going to be the right one. Jack Leshner said the title songs for all the shows occurred in the second act except for Gypsy. Well, if you have to use the word accept in the answer, <laughs> it's not going to be the right one either. So anyway, congratulations to Brigadoo, the one and only champion this week. Okay. So later on in our broadcast, we're going to ask you next week's question. Okay. So let's move on to the review section. Peter got over to 59 East 59 uh, to see the Sabbath girl. So tell us about this uh Penguin Rep Joe Broncato production. Yes, it is. Uh, He's done a terrific job of directing, too. I mean, it really was quite wonderful to see uh, something so beautifully and sensitively directed. So I was tremendously, tremendously impressed by that. And um, but anyway, The Sabbath Girl is a play by a playwright new to me. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this man or woman. I'm not sure. Uh, Carrie Gitter, G-I-T-T-E-R. but anyway, uh, Mr. or Ms. Gitter um, has a wonderfully moving story here that may very well bring tears to your eyes at the end of the show. They did to mine. Um, it, well, all right. You know, one of Manhattan's unwritten rules is never get romantically involved with anybody in your building. Because, yeah. you know, if you do mm-hmm. and it doesn't work out, you'll have those embarrassing moments where you bump into each other in the lobby. Uh, elevator rides will seem much longer, you know, under those certain. <laughs> all right. So Angie and Seth, Angie's the woman, Seth the guy, um, not only live in the same building, they live in the same floor. Okay, so that could be really dicey. But anyway, um, so really, if this relationship fails, they're going to see each other much more than Seinfeld has been seen in syndication. So, all right, here's the problem. Seth is a very serious Orthodox Jew who observes the Sabbath to the nth degree. Well, it's summertime. And he didn't put it on his air conditioning in the morning. Uh, And he came home from work and was much harder than he expected. And he really needs this air conditioning on, but he cannot press the button. So he goes across the hall and bangs on the energy store and said, listen, will you press the button for me? So that's how they meet. Now, I will admit that I expected this play to deal with the issue 
of the loophole. And he uses that word. He says, there is a loophole that I can ask somebody else to do this for me. And I think this should come up in the play, frankly, that um, should there be loopholes? I mean, really, I mean, if you're going to do this, <laughs> shouldn't you really do it? I would like to hear from people who, um, who are Orthodox Jews who must have an opinion one way or the other on this, if they really feel that it's cheating. Peter, can I interrupt you for a second? Sure. Have you ever seen a high-rise building on uh, on the Sabbath where the the elevator is set to stop yes. on every floor and go oh, up yeah, and down? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah. that's for this yeah, because right. they can't press the button. Right. And, you know, <laughs> if you live on the 50th floor, that— yeah, It's going to take a while. Yeah, it's and a big, I— the Sabbath have, will be over. Yeah, by the time you finish, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, if I may interrupt, I have a friend who sometimes works as a Shabbos goy. Yeah, that's uh, the term. Yeah. You know what that is? <laughs> yeah, that's what, exactly what we're talking about. That term is used. And when I've talked oh. to people about this play, they have said, "Oh, you mean a Sabbath goy?" You know. So, uh, <laughs> but this person actually does it for money, Michael. Is that what you're saying? Uh yes. Wow. I don't think it's a lot of money, but wow, yeah. boy. A, a new My kid. guidance counselor in high school never told me this was an option. Exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, it's a whole industry. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, really, I mean, it's just amazing to me. And again, some people may say, oh, it's not cheating. It's it's uh, not a loophole. It's perfectly fine to do it. But it does seem it to me. And I think that should come up in the play. But it doesn't. But it, anyway, there's so much else that's good in the, the play that um, I really don't much care that that's uh, the issue. Now, um, I don't think it's really much of a spoiler to indicate that they're going to wind up together. But. But the fact is that he has a sister who is even more of an an Orthodox Jew than he is, and she is apoplectic that he's even considering dating this girl because she knows a lot of nice Jewish <laughs> girls, you know, that type of thing. And she is really, really, um, to use that expression, uh, Hamish, um, very, very much um, centered, uh, a housewifey type, that type of thing. Uh, very well played by Laura Singerman, Lauren Singerman. I'll tell you, <laughs> Joe Priancato cast her so perfectly. She has exactly the look that this uh, person should have. But So, yeah, Yes, I mean, um, what's going to happen as time goes on, even after they get together? Because um, you're going to have a lot of barriers here. And that's, you know, the type of thing that a lot of plays avoid. And this one does too. But I'm telling you, the ride you take with these people is so wonderful. Seth has a Kanish shop down in the Lower East Side, and his sister works with him. That's why um, she has such a profound influence on his life. And, um, and he says, you got to come down and try my conditions because she's been buying them at Nathan's and which, you know, appalls him, you know, wait till you taste mine. And she does come down. She doesn't just come down for the, for the food. She comes down because she likes him. And, um, What's also interesting is that she gets advice from her grandmother, Sophia, wonderfully played by Angelina Fiordelisi, um, who rescued the Cherry Lane Theater, by the way, um, many years ago, and has been doing wonderful work there as an artistic director. So so anyway, uh, charming, charming, charming. Uh, Lauren Annunziata plays Angie, and Jeremy Risch plays Seth. There's also a very, very similar feeling to um, Crossing Delancey. If you saw that play some years ago mm. in which the girl is looking uh, to with the big guy, you know, the important guy who's um, who's made a real name for himself in the literary world. And um, she's really uh, pursuing him while the pickle salesman uh, is somebody she's really attracted to. But how can you compare a pickle salesman with a best-selling author? Well, here it's a very similar situation because she runs an art gallery and she really is very interested in landing Blake, who's a really hot artist and very pretentious, beautifully played by Ty Mulbach. But anyway, um, what's really amazing to me is I was saying, gee, this is a lot like Crossing Delancey. There's even an allusion to a pickle salesman. So th- that, hmm. Those words are actually used. So as a result, you know, you wonder if um, <laughs> these people have seen Crossing Delancey and, uh, and are referencing it. Um, or if Carrie Gitter really feels um, I better, you know, uh, do a preemptive strike here and, um, and mention it before somebody else does. But yeah, there are similarities, but I'm telling you, it is so charming. And um, despite my, reservations which um aren't i don't think insignificant but still if a show can make you cry at the end it's really doing the right thing so um i hope everybody gets the sabbath girl and i hope it moves joe broncato oh yeah penguin yeah. rep 5090s 59 i mean these are three things that we 
I can't think of a bad word ever said about them. Let me say this too. I'll never forget going up to Pen- Penguin. We're up um, uh, in Stony Point, uh, New York, um, maybe about an hour from here or something like that. But anyway, I went there and there was a talk back and there he was um, at the talk back and uh, people are asking questions and he's pointing to the people who have their hands up. Uh, Joe, um, Sylvia, um, Martha, he knew everybody's name. Mm-hmm. And that is really great. You might say, well, it's a small space. It's a small town. But still, how many times have you seen an artistic director never miss when asking somebody for a question and giving a name? I mean, I was so impressed by that. And I think that's one reason why he's still in business, because he's really made it a community center of sorts. And um, that's really quite wonderful. I love going up there. I haven't been in a while. I have to uh, rep, um, make that uh, change and get up there sooner rather than later. But uh, in the meantime, the Sabbath girl has really filled the need. Uh, and I'm very glad to have been there. Okay. So that is the Sabbath girl at 59 59 playing through March 8th. Uh, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, next up, Michael, you got over to City Center to see Mac and Mabel, part of the Encore series. So um, tell us, how did this Jerry Herman production stack up? Well, I was I was really, really glad to see it. I was really glad they did it. And before I go on, I wanted to mention, you know, I've spoken about Jerry Herman a lot recently with his passing and also because I attended his Broadway memorial. But I didn't mention that technically I performed with him once. Oh, yeah? Because I was in the New York City Gay Men's Chorus at the time when we participated in the best of the best, which was a huge AIDS benefit, one of the first and certainly one of the most star-studded in November 1985 at the Metropolitan Opera House. Oh, nice. And the, the performers and presenters included Bette Midler, Carol Burnett, Colleen Dewhurst, Ellen Burstyn, Mikhail Barishnikov, Christopher Reeve, Peter Allen, uh, Marilyn Horn, Lily Tomlin, Melissa Manchester, Burt Bacharach, and Carol Bayer Sager. Uh, those last two performed That's What Friends Are For, which is mm. that song that they wrote as an AIDS benefit. And then the finale of the show was Jerry Herman at the piano uh, and Walter Charles, who had taken over uh, in La Cage aux Folles. Mm-hmm performing I'll be here I'll be here tomorrow from the mm-hmm. Grand Tour Jerry mm-hmm. Herman's show the Grand Tour and it started with just uh the two of them but then the like this huge uh. drop on stage came up and the chorus uh, all 150 of us were standing behind it on risers and then everyone I just mentioned the entire cast filed on from the wings and joined in to sing the finale of I'll Be Here Tomorrow. And Jerry was still at the piano, so technically I did perform. With That's him. right. <laughs> <Atta boy. laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it's just nice to be able to say something like that, even, uh, you know, it's not exactly the two of us in a cabinet. Well, I, when Alan Bennett was doing Beyond the Fringe, uh, his bio ended with, he once got into a cab that had just been vacated by C.P. Snow. So uh, if he could use that, <laughs> so can you. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Uh, Mac and Mabel is uh, one of the most famous shows that almost everyone agrees has an absolutely fabulous score and a very, very problematic book, which apparently is what doomed it uh, on Broadway in the 70s. I have seen, I, I think this is not always the case, but I think I'm guessing that I've seen more or as many productions of this show as probably almost anyone, maybe even Peter, because I saw it. Grant. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Well, 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 let's see. Uh, I saw it at Paper Mill in 1988. Me too. And that was, uh, (laughs) Lee Horsley and Janet Metz directed Mm -hmm. by Robert Johansson. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, then I saw it at LA reprise in 2000 in which Doug Sills was Mac and Jane Krakowski was Mabel and Donna McKechnie was Lottie. And that was directed by Arthur Allen Seidelman with choreography by Dan Serretta and musical direction by Peter Matz. Okay. You got me there. Go on. (laughs) Uh, And then I saw that um, they did a big gala concert version of the show in uh, 20. 
uh, excuse me, 2003 at Avery Fisher for a GMHC benefit. Um, and the, uh, in that case, the songs were split up among several people. There wasn't just one Mac and one Mabel and one Lottie, but it was Douglas Sills, Karen Ziemba, Harvey Firestein, Donna McKechnie, Hunter and Sutton Foster, Jason Grah, Debbie Gravitt, Sam Harris, Jerry Orbach, Yu Panaro, Leslie Uggams, Marissa Jarrett, Winoker, uh, the Uptown Express group of the New York City Gay Men's Chorus, and the Rockettes, plus Jerry Herman himself. And that was also uh, directed by Arthur Allen Seidelman, Seiden, Seiden, excuse me, mm-hmm. choreography by Dan Serretta and musical direction by Donald Pippen. No, um, I wasn't there either. Go yeah. on. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and, and I would say that maybe that was the best of all the Mac and Mabels that I saw because there was no book. <laughs> um, then I saw it <laughs> at the Shaw Festival in 2007, uh, directed by Molly Smith, choreography by Byork Lee. Oh. And uh, my main memory of that was the fellow playing Mac did a straight up Robert Preston imitation. Uh-huh. And I wasn't uh-huh. really very happy about that. Um, so, and then this one. So th- those are the uh, those are the ones that I've seen. I don't, I don't know if that in sheer number. I don't know if that compares with Peter, but I feel like I've seen more than most people. <laughs> I've seen it seven times. Um, oh wow! I, I, saw, I saw the original Broadway production on a Friday night before they closed on Saturday, and I still remember when it was over. <clears throat> Robert Preston. Uh, the curtain calls have happened. Robert Preston and Bernadette Peters are leaving the stage, and he looked at her so sadly and put up his fingers to represent two, meaning two more performances, and she looks so sad, too. Mm. Um, it's very popular in England, and I saw it there twice. Oh, yes. Um, um, uh, the first production with Howard McGillan and uh, Caroline O'Connor, and then years later, many years later, uh, John Doyle did a tiny production. Um, those of you who know London theaters, uh, the Criterion Theater, um, the one where you go downstairs where um, the um, one of those play that goes wrong type shows. I think it's the comedy of the bank robbery um, has been there for a while. 39 steps was there forever. So um, there was that production as well. Uh, as I say, I saw the paper mill production. Then I saw it twice at the Cincinnati conservatory of music um, where indeed um, um, it uh, was a, a nice big hit despite the uh, ending. I wasn't able to get to this one, Michael um, at encore. So uh, tell me any good. Well, there was a lot of it that was that was very very good. It's uh, it's they they keep rewriting the book. It's um, uh, the sister of Michael Stewart, who wrote the original book. Her name is Francine Pascal. Has I think quite some years ago took over uh, stewardship of the property after he died. And I think that maybe that was even starting with Paper Mill. Does that sound right? Um, I don't remember that happening, but I won't say no. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's it's been quite some time. Uh, I did think that this ending for this production was the the most satisfying that I've seen. That doesn't mean they solve the other problems with the book, but this is the story. Well, purportedly the story of Max mm-hmm. Sennett, the uh, famous silent film director, uh, most famous for the Keystone Cops. Uh, who uh, and his romance with Mabel Normand, the silent film star. But uh, as many people have pointed out, for some reason, uh, this is a highly, highly inaccurate uh, as a bio musical, which it doesn't really pretend to be. But on the other hand, you know, they are called Max Sennett and Mabel Norman. So um, everything, it, it, you just look them up and you'll see immediately that uh, the, the inaccuracies start almost from the beginning. Um, there's uh, Mabel's first song. She sings uh, Miss Waitress from Flatbush, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But she wasn't a waitress from Flatbush. She was from Staten Island. She uh, started as a model and she had apparently already begun acting when she met Mac. And in fact, they met together when they were working uh, on, I think, maybe on the same film or whatever, when they were working together at the Biograph Studios. Uh, so I suppose that was rewritten because they wanted it to be a Cinderella story and they, ha- they wanted to have Mac discover her in this, uh, musical. She is working in a deli, uh, in 
in Flatbush, presumably, um, or in Brooklyn or whatever. And she comes to the set to deliver uh, some food. And then I always thought that scene is e- extremely similar to a scene in uh, on the 20th, 20th century. century yeah. yeah. And the thing well, don't about- forget Mac and Mabel came first. Mac and Mabel came first. And also yeah. that scene in on the 20th century is not in the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was uh, that was invented for the the musical on the 20th century, and probably by someone who had seen Mac and Mabel. <laughs> uh, but it's so similar. She's demanding her money, and he won't give it to her. And then he makes her a star. Uh, uh, it's a little too similar for comfort. I've always thought. Uh, anyway, uh, there's lots of inaccuracies, and this is one of those cases where I always think, well, why did they change the facts when the facts are so interesting? <laughs> uh, but anyway, regardless, um, that's one of the issues with the book. Some people are not bothered by the fact of uh, when, uh, when real life stories deviate from what actually happened. But even if you're not, there, there are other issues. There's not a whole lot of plot. It's just kind of an on-again, off-again romance. And Mac is... Um, He's a very talented person, but he's he has difficulty showing affection, and so uh, great difficulty showing affection, and so uh, that's why basically she she feels unappreciated and she leaves. Then she comes back. Then she leaves again. Then she comes back again. Um, but uh, whatever issues there are in the book, the score is just just great. I believe that Herman. Uh, had at, at least at some point said that it was his favorite among his scores. Every single song is a winner. Uh, the only one I would say that was less than great uh, from the original is no longer in it. And that song is called My Heart Leaps Up. Uh, I don't think it's a bad song. I just think it's not not exceptional. So they um, did hit him on the head. Is that what they did? Yes, instead? they replaced uh, it. Uh, uh, it has been replaced with a song mm-hmm. called Hit Him on the Head, which actually depicts the Keystone cops who I think is it true that they were only in it very briefly originally. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's another issue is that um, part of the, part of the challenge of producing Mac and Mabel is reproducing silent era comedy on stage in a musical, which is obviously difficult to do for many reasons. I thought this production did a decent job of it, but still it was a little forced and uh, there's no way to get away from that. But the orchestra uh, as conducted by Rob Berman was absolutely phenomenal. And I would say a very strong cast overall. Doug Sills, there's a reason why this is his second time playing Mac in a production of the full show. In addition to that uh, that benefit concert, which I mentioned, in which he was one of several Max, he's absolutely perfect for the part. Uh, in looks and style, and he, he uh, he's always wonderful in in period shows, regardless of the period. Uh, he he just has a wonderful timeless period quality to him. Uh, it's it's kind of contradictory. I mean, he seems period but timeless at the same time. Uh, and he he did seem um, a little he, he was using a very gruff uh, sort of barking uh, tone for his to deliver his lines uh, in this production. And I know some people complained about intelligibility, but I think maybe um, that uh, he had addressed it by the time I saw the Friday night performance, because there were only a few moments where I had difficulty understanding him, whereas previously so, uh, some other people had been. Uh, complaining about that, so maybe he, uh, maybe someone spoke with him, or he realized it was an issue, and and he uh, addressed that. Alexandra Sosha, absolutely, absolutely wonderful as Mabel. Uh, all all of the personality and star quality required, uh, plus a great voice and committed acting and great comic chops and acting ability. And she was really, really good. Uh, I was um, very impressed with Lily Cooper, who I have always loved, but did not, I, she did not strike me as ideal casting for the role of Lottie uh, simply because she's never, to my knowledge, played any 
role like that before this uh, kind of brassy uh, um, showbiz 1920s uh, person. And also uh, her dancing was really quite wonderful in this. And I don't think I've seen her do that type of dancing before. So very, very impressed with her. Um, by the way, directed and choreographed very well overall by Josh Rhodes, I would say. Uh, I loved it. I, I had the impression that the audience was with really with the show for certain stretches. And then uh, it kind of got away from them because that's the way it's it's written there are there are scenes and moments that work really well and then uh, others that that really do not there's a lot of, there's also a lot of uh monologues narration in it from mac which uh is often like you know is often identified uh, many people feel that that's a, a a sign of a flawed book when there's that much narration in it. Uh, so Doug Sills did a great job with it, but, uh, but, that, but I think inherently that's an issue. And um, it, uh, it's probably close to, close to uh, the best production of this that, well, that, that most of us will ever see. Uh, it's, it's um, well, the one that I saw in LA reprise uh, that really was special because uh, of the star power involved. And, and also uh, I don't recall. Um, I think maybe they did an abbreviated version of the book, but I think they did most of it. Uh, anyway, uh, it's, it is at uh, city center just through today. Uh, if you hear this quick enough, if you haven't seen it, you can rush over there and see it. Um, I read a couple of commentaries on it uh, by other people that struck me as very um, astute. Uh, Melissa Rose Bernardo, who writes for New York Stage Review and whom I worked with years ago, she had a really nice turn of phrase. Um, she wrote that Encores is the perfect venue for a show like this one with, quote, a bang up score and a banged up book. <laughs> I thought that was really uh, accurate mm -hmm. and also, uh, you know, very witty. Mm -hmm. And then um, someone actually on all that chat wrote uh, uh, the 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 piece that is heard on the cast album of Mac and Mabel as the overture mm -hmm. at the beginning of the CD is actually or was actually the entract in the uh, in the original production. It has since been moved to the overture apparently uh, and what someone wrote on all that chat was uh that in the original it was the on track champion gower champion who directed the original production hated overtures the original hello dolly didn't have one nor did carnival the happy time or i do i do but Herman, Jerry Herman, insisted that it lead the album as the overture, quote unquote, when the cast album was recorded. And when the show was prepared for licensing, it permanently became the overture. And eventually Herman had a real contract written. So that's just some interesting information about that. I personally think um, it, it, it worked very well as the contract uh for this production and they uh I made, this might be a mild spoiler if you if you are going to see it today um uh towards the end of the the piece uh three huge photos of jerry herman came down from the flies and the audience just went nuts it was mm -hmm. really wonderful it's too bad that he did not live to see this i uh, i've heard all sorts of things about um that they encores had wanted to do Mac and Mabel for years, and he didn't want them to supposedly because he felt there was still um, the chance of a Broadway revival, which makes no sense to me because, as we know, uh, several encore shows have served as the impetus for Broadway revivals, and I certainly don't think it would have prevented one. So I'm not sure what his reasoning was there, but uh, for whatever reason. Uh, I guess he did agree to it before he died. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they did not know for sure that he was going to die then. And so this was not originally planned as a memorial uh, posthumous tribute, but that's what it turned out to be. And it certainly is a great, great tribute to one of the great composer lyricists that Broadway has ever known. You know, it could be that somebody had the first class rights to it. 
and they hadn't expired until he agreed. To, they expired, and then he let encores. You know, somebody might have owned those rights. Certainly, that's a possibility. I'm just saying what I what yeah. I heard. No, no, sure, but that would sort of be the missing piece there that would make that make sense. Yeah. Because certainly, uh, you know, whenever we he- see a very good production of something at Encores, we think of uh, the the gold mine of uh, Chicago. And speaking of Chicago, you saw some very important people in the audience there, didn't you? <laughs> oh, yes. Barry Weisler was there. So, um, you know, make of that yeah. what you will. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, move forward into the drinking section of our podcast. Um, Peter, you got over to the Chelsea Music Hall on West 15th Street, nearly in the river, all the way over there, uh, where you saw something called a cocktail party social experiment, which is a monthly thing at the Chelsea Music Hall. So tell us about it. It's um, you know, people are always saying to me, "What's the worst thing you've ever seen in all your trips to the theater?" And <laughs> and you know they expect me to see moose murders, which I did see some of, but um, but that wasn't nearly as bad as this. I'm sorry to say, and I think this may now and forever be the answer to that question, as far as I'm concerned. So um, yeah, uh, it's once a month uh, on a Monday, and I'm telling you, I don't care what shape Chicago a phantom is in, you're better off going to uh, those shows than going to this. So, but um, I went last Monday uh, in the, it's in a basement with a bar, and um, Will Petrie, I guess P T R E, um, reached into a bowl and drew slips on which audience members had written their names, all in hopes they'd be called to the stage, and um, those chosen played with. Petrie and uh, Chiaka Murata, they collaborated, have conceived and dubbed a cocktail party game. Now, it's not a game at all, um, as those who were game enough to volunteer soon found out. They they trotted up to the stage and were told to sit in a chair that was obscured by a microphone. And, and not a handheld mic, but you know those microphones on a stand? Think of the number seven, you know, and uh, the mic is on the left end of the horizontal mm-hmm. trough. It swings back and forth. So the participants swung the mic away, sat down, returned it to its original position. And then they were asked some benign questions like, do you prefer paper or plastic? And uh, which couldn't have been much interest to many people. Um, and then they were instructed to get up, walk to a table and choose one card each from two decks. Now, why couldn't the cards be on the table right next to them? These victims, I mean, why make the poor souls push away the microphone, get up, choose, return, pull the mic back? I mean, a, a real time killer. So the cards have symbols on them. Um, some uh, One deck has things like a tornado and the other one has like astrological signs and, um, and was shown them over an overhead projector. And then what happens is whatever two cards are drawn, there's a book which has every combination of the cards and they have to take time to look at the book and find out what the combination is. And, um, and then they ask questions uh, like, do you keep your friends close and your enemies closer? Um, and that killed more time. Well, maybe it, we can say it murdered more time. I, you know, <laughs> the entertainment one gets from this experiment, of course, is wholly dependent on the wit and honesty that those from the stage can dispense. Um, on the night you attend, um, should you be so foolhardy, you may get some delightfully loquacious people, but at this, shall we say, performance, um, one dud followed another. Um, you can always tell when people are stumped when somebody asks a question and the person says, that's a good question. And then there's this long pause, you know, uh, it's just a way of stalling for time. You know, um, I, I will say during a football game, seconds tick by very quickly, but on stage when nothing is happening, nothing at all, seconds seem like minutes. Um, the sound of silence uh, may be um, very golden in many situations, but here it was base metal. I mean, it was just horrible. So, so when these poor souls finally did think of something, they thought was interesting, which, by the way, it wasn't. Um, they blathered it away until they could think of nothing else, and then they wound up repeating what they said originally, which was already boring. So um, there's no credit for a director uh, proving that even Alan Smithy wouldn't put his name on this thing. But um, somebody desperately needs to come in and clean up the blocking because here's the other thing. Um, they they set up chairs in a horseshoe type of situation. Okay. So at the top of the horseshoe is where they show the slides. Okay. On each side of the horseshoe, they uh, have people after people um, 
say what they have to say. They go sit, you know, sort of like the tonight show, you know, after you sit in the big chair, you go over to the couch. Well, the same type of thing. After you finish um, saying what you have to say and they bring up the next person, you go and you sit in uh, the seats on the sides of the horseshoe, shall we say. And um, so as a result, there are people sitting behind the chairs. Um, and so all they're getting um, as the show goes on is the backs of the people. Those people are on the left and right side of the stage. What's wrong with setting them all up in a line with the moderator in the middle? And uh, that way everybody can see everybody at every time. So, I mean, I, so I think you do need a director in there to uh, clean that up. Um, so, um, really, really bizarre. And, you know, Will Petrie isn't even that good an interviewer. When one contestant said he'd recently moved to New York, Petrie didn't even have the wherewithal to say, oh, from where? Um, hmm. he, he moved on to an unrelated topic. And you know what actually happened? I swear this is true. Um, finally, um, an audience member said, wait, 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 wait. Where'd you move from? You know, I mean, just uh, nobody had ever done that during the entire show. But I mean, he was so frustrated. <laughs> and that's when we learned he split his time between Vancouver and Los Angeles. So um, and the other thing, <sighs> there was smooth jazz playing over the loudspeakers at all times. It never ended. Lovely jazz. Terrific. But it obscured what the people had to say. Of course, since they didn't have anything interesting to say, the jazz was more interesting, and I would have had a better time just listening to the jazz, uh, nothing at all um, happening on. And by the way, you're on folding chairs um, the whole night. But um, what really should fold is this show. All right. So let's uh, move back up to the Times Square area where you saw um, Rules of Desire at the Playroom Theater. Um, just... Uh, Right in the heart of the theater district. So tell us about Rules of Desire. Okay. Well, um, first off, um, I want to give certainly um, a um, a full disclosure. And that is that uh, Rules of Desire is produced by Eric Krebs, who produced my play God Shows Up last year. And it stars Christopher Sutton, who starred in God Shows Up last year. So I have to uh, bring those two things to the uh, fore and uh, mention that I think it's really a terrific production that Eric has given it. And that Christopher Sutton is magnificent in the part. He really is such a fine actor. And really, I know it, it must seem I say this because, you know, we've worked together and, and he was a, a peach to work with, too. But um, this is uh, quite a, a story. And what happens here, uh, we're in a submarine. Nice set, by the way. And um, in the submarine, and a sailor has um, snuck in his girlfriend. And uh, his commanding officer, played by Chris Sutton, um, finds out about it and takes advantage of her, saying, okay, she can stay. But you get it for 12 hours and I get it for 12 hours. That's what I want. Um, that's what's going to happen. And um, we'll see what happens as time goes on. Who's the victim? Who's the perpetrator? We will see who the victim is as time goes on. Now, in a way, this is um, uh, very much thematically related to a play called Extremities. Uh, where you may recall that a, a burglar breaks in and uh, the person's apartment to whom he breaks in um, eventually is sorry that uh, he did. Um, and that was by William Master Simone. And so is this play, too. So, uh, William Rauderbusch has given a very good production, and uh, it goes in directions you don't expect it to. It uh, It's not as salacious as you might think it is, but that doesn't mean it's an easy play to uh, enjoy. You're impressed by it. Uh, enjoy is another story entirely, and um, it's not a play that was meant to make you enjoy in the sense of <laughs> the best parts of Mac and Mabel. Um, but it is a powerful, powerful, powerful evening, and um, your your heart is in your um, throat, as the expression goes, much of the way, because you really do feel for these people who are victimized by uh, Christopher Sutton's character. So Tristan Bieber plays the um, the sailor who sneaks in the woman, McKenna Harrington. I thought she wasn't going to be good when she started, but she turned out to be magnificent um, and uh, really good. And I will say that this play does not make men look good. Um, both men turn out to be severely flawed. And uh, so uh, take that into consideration as well. Um, it certainly doesn't make our sex um, 
look very good. So, but uh, quite, quite a play, quite a play indeed. And um, you will feel like you've been punched in the gut and uh, punched so hard that you're, um, that you may actually feel like uh, you're close to vomiting. But you'll keep it down because uh, the writing is so great and the um, and the performances are too. Okay. So um, we really have to see maybe we'll get Eric Krebs on to talk because he, he just is nonstop of, uh, of finding new works to present over and over and over. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's the life force behind uh, this Broadway industry. Especially lately, I, I'm so, again, so delighted that Romeo and, Romeo and Bernadette is moving uh, and is going to have an extended run at um, stage 42. Let me also say that, um, you know, having worked with Eric, um, <laughs> every now and then he says to me, this is it. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> not, you know, and then he says, I've got this new show, you know, <laughs> and then after the new show, he says, that's, you know, there's no sense, you know, <laughs> you can't make any money off Broadway. Oh, I got this new show, you know, so um, it really, um, <laughs> uh, we hear about sawdust and veins for people who work in the circus. I don't know what he has in his veins, but it's very theatrical and uh, may he continue long, 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 uh, for years to come. Okay, so that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have a question for this week's trivia? Yeah. What writer, who's a member of the Theater Hall of Fame, worked on two musicals set in Greece? One took place in the 20th century, and one was set in a much, much, much earlier era. Hmm. Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.